this service, uh, myself and the worship team, we, we pray together just for the Lord's presence and the Lord's Spirit to be active and present in, in all that we do. And as we prayed this morning, I, my prayer was that, that, uh, that our worship this morning, would, would, the worship team would lead us into the presence of Jesus. And, uh, and so I'm grateful for their willingness and, and their obedience to that. And, and, uh, and I believe that they, that they have. I, I just feel like this was a really beautiful time of worship as we reflected on the, the, the reality that Jesus is, uh, He is, I am. And uh, as, we, uh, as we sing that song, Yahweh, that's where that word comes from, is the, the Exodus 4, and, and Moses in the burning bush, and, and, and Moses says, who shall, who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am. It's that, that, the Hebrew word there is Yahweh, and, uh, and it's this ever-present, pra- ever everlasting God that's, that we worship this morning, that, that the same God that, that Moses worshipped thousands of years ago, we worship today. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to be able to gather as His church, whether we're in person or whether we're online, to be able to, to celebrate the everlastingness of Jesus. That wasn't even part of my sermon. That's just the bonus part. But uh, let me pray as we, as we go in here to continue to worship. Lord, this morning we are excited to be able to, to hear from You. And uh, Lord, I pray that the words that I share would be uh, would, would reveal something about your word, that they would be, uh, that the words that I share would actually be from you, that it wouldn't be anything about me, but, but it would be you speaking through me. And anything that is of me, I pray that it would just fall away and, and, uh, and that it would just blow away like chaff of wheat. Lord, I pray that you would be present in all that we do today. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, some friends of mine, they, were, they had the opportunity to go to Africa. And while they were there, one of the things that they were really excited about doing was going on an African safari. And now one of the highlights for most people would be on a safari would be to see the, the big five. Now, the big five are the animals that, that are either considered threatened species or uh, are the biggest trophies for big game hunters, so the big five in Africa, these are the things that, that these animals are the ones that Africa is most renowned for, would be the African elephant and the African black rhino, the Cape buffalo, the African leopard, and of course, the pride of Africa, the lion. The lion has the reputation of all the big five to be the most dangerous and vicious hunters in Africa. With their perfect combination of stealth and viciousness and tactics, they've quickly earned their reputation and maintained their reputation as one, of the, as, as one of the most fearsome predators in Africa. And they have managed to keep themselves at the top of the food chain throughout their existence. If you've ever watched a National Geographic documentary or, or a, a show from Animal Planet, you know that lions are intelligent merciless predators that take nothing into account except their own instincts. Lions typically hunt their prey in one of two ways. They either stalk their prey, or they stay hidden in the long grass as long as possible, moving slowly, quietly, approaching their prey until, until their prey finally hears something or smells something, and then the chase ensues as the prey runs away. If that doesn't work, Lions, they work together, and they hunt in, in packs at times, where they begin to 
strategically corner their prey, often targeting the young or the old or the wounded. Now, when a lion has caught its prey, they'll do one of two things to finish it off. They'll bite the back of its neck and break its neck and paralyze it. So it's immobile at that point. Or they'll clamp their jaws around its throat and eventually suffocate the animal. These animals are brutal, vicious animals. In Daniel 6, which is what we are going to be exploring today, we read about Daniel who had his own encounter with a lion. Now, over the last two Sundays, we've been journeying through the life of four young Jewish men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When we were first introduced to these four men in Daniel chapter 1 and 2, they had just been exiled into Babylon from Judah. And they had gone through a series of indoctrinational process to begin to, to uh, indoctrinate them into the Babylonian culture. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, Daniel's claim to fame was his ability to accurately discern and interpret a dream that the king of Babylon had and, and that he had dreamt. As we enter into chapter 6, though, about 60 years has passed from when we were first introduced to these four guys. Throughout those 60 years, a number of things has occurred. And the first thing we discover from chapter 1 and 2 is that now there's a change of management. For the last two weeks, Daniel was living in a kingdom ruled by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. Now Babylon has fallen, and now it's being ruled by Persia as the ruling nation. And so if you remember from Daniel chapter 1 and 2, the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, it was now becoming fulfilled. It was starting to, things were starting to change in spite of Nebuchadnezzar's best efforts. The ruling Persian king at this point was now Darius. Now, one of the things that, one of the ways that Darius tried to govern Persia was by taking the land of Persia and beginning to divide it into 120, probably the best way for us to understand it would be states or provinces. And he assigned three prime ministers to, to direct and govern and lead these 120 states. He divided it in three different ways. And we see that one of these three governors is Daniel. Daniel, over the last 60 plus years, has been working his way up the governmental ladder. And at the age of around 80 or 90 years old, which is what he would, that's about how old he would be in chapter 6. He's now been given this monumental task of, administ of administrating leadership through large portions of the kingdom of Persia. Most commentators have concluded that, that Daniel was probably, was probably the, the highest official just under King Darius at this point. He was kind of second in command in Persia. But like most political circles, there is a constant competition to climb the political ladder and overtake and leapfrog the people above them. So Daniel is at the top. But just like a pride of lions, there's always younger, ambitious lions ready to try to upset the order of power and control. In a pride, the lions, they would just simply fight and establish dominance. In the political arena, in Persia, there was a combination of political posturing, but there was also an element of racism that was actually taking place here. These, these Persians could, were looking at this, this, this Jew, this, this Jew from, who had been exiled from Judah, 
who somehow had gained the favor of King Darius. And as a result, the, 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 other, the younger politicians had this hatred towards Daniel. And so these pol- younger politicians, these other politicians began to strategize together. They began to conspire with one another and there was whispering in the shadows. They were lurking in the, in the long grass. And they've tried to establish a smear campaign that would ideally bring Daniel down. And so they looked into his past. Surely there's got to be something, some misdealings as a politician that's got to be there. They looked into his previous relationships, and they came up short. They couldn't find anything about Daniel that would compromise him. He, he was literally the most politically correct man to have ever lived. In verse 4, it says, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt and negligent. Daniel may have been the last honest politician. Just like when a lion chases their prey and gets away, they form a different strategy. And so these, these politicians begin to conspire a plan to trap their prey instead. This time, we read in verse 7 that they come to the king with a new idea, a new approach. Let's trap Daniel on the basis of his religion. So they propose to King Darius. We've gotten together as, as the royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and governors, and we have all agreed, making the assumption that Daniel has also agreed with this. So they've, all, they've given some, there's some deception here, obviously, that we have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, in Persia, when an edict was passed like this, it was, even, even if it was passed by the king, it was irreversible. The king could pass another edict that could counteract it, but he could not amend this. He can't change it at this point. The trap was set. These these young political lions had had begun to set their plan into motion, and it didn't take long before before their, 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 their prey was caught. As soon as, because as soon as Daniel hears about this new decree in verse 10, It says, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. And it's in this verse that we begin to see this dichotomy throughout this entire chapter between two typical responses of times when we are distressed. Those moments when we are, are, have things going on in our lives that we're just not sure how to deal with, those moments where we're just confused, when, things were, are, when we're stressed, we're anxious, we have just lots going on and we're not sure how to deal with it, we begin to see here, we're going to see throughout this, this chapter two different responses and, and contrasting responses here, and this is the first part, where Daniel provides with, for us one model and Darius actually provides the alternative. Now, one of the things that I want to highlight here in this particular chapter 6 is that the preferred mode of responding to our distress is always addressed first in this chapter. There's always, this is the ideal, but this is the alternative. The first thing we see from Daniel after hearing about this new edict is to go to his house and do what? Complain, 
make a strongly worded status change on his Facebook account, throw something, send a strongly worded email to somebody. Not at all. The first thing he does is praise. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm distressed, when I'm anxious, when I've got lots going on in my mind and just things are just like all over the place in my head, prayer seems to be the last thing that I want to do. I'd rather be angry. I'd rather vent to someone. I'd rather rally the masses around to support my opinion so I feel validated in my own experience, my own position about whatever it is that's displeasing me. But Daniel doesn't. Instead, he prays. I wonder what he prayed about. I wonder whether he prayed that God would destroy his enemies like David did in the Psalms. I wonder if if he prayed for ideas to, to strategically rebel against Darius and stick it to the governmental oppression. Maybe he prayed about whether he should just stop praying for those 30 days and just spare his life. And, and, and then, I mean, after all, he was allowed to pray afterwards. It's just 30 days. Personally, I don't think he did any of those things. Now, admittedly, we don't know what his prayer was like in that moment, just to be clear. But the biggest thing that we see in, in Daniel chapter 6 is silence. Daniel doesn't say a word this entire time. There's lots of talk from the other politicians, from Darius, but there's silence from Daniel. There's nothing from Daniel through this whole ordeal, which makes me wonder if maybe his prayer was for wisdom on how he could honor God in the midst of this ordeal going on. I wonder if he prayed for faith that God would be in control of the situation rather than him. I wonder if he prayed for the hope that the king of kings would have one more move. Whatever he prayed, though, we see this silent strength. We see this peace overcome him in the midst of this distress. We see this peace in Daniel where he defies the governmental decrees without sacrificing his integrity. Daniel doesn't complain or allow his distress to consume him. Instead, he assumes the same position he has taken daily since he left Judah 60 years earlier. Windows open, eyes to the holy city of Jerusalem in accordance to the prayer of Solomon and worshiped his God. This is exactly what the other politicians of Persia were, waiting, Persia were waiting for. This is what they were hoping for. And they immediately bring their accusations to Darius. And they say, you know, we thought Daniel was, was, part of the, was, was going to agree, but look at him. He's, he's defying your orders, Darius. And then the light bulb comes on for Darius. How could I have been so naive? They weren't trying to flatter me. They weren't trying to honor me as their king. These guys are lions. They're predators, and and I helped them catch their prey. And the king responds to his distress by providing us with, with the alternative to Daniel. Daniel prayed in verse 10. 
verse 14 says, Darius was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. He, took, he tried to take matters into his own hands. And no matter how hard Darius tried, he was helpless. Even as the king of Persia, he, his, efforts, his best efforts failed. I don't know if you've ever been in that sort of situation, but there are probably more times than not that I can relate more to Darius than I can to Daniel, especially when it comes to how I handle distress, when my kids don't behave, when pastoring the church is challenging, when I have an argument with my wife, when finances are tight, or, or when the weight of this pandemic just weighs heavily on my mind and emotions. Darius did what I do. I try to take over. I'll solve the problem my way. I'll take over from here. If I'm in a situation I don't like, what's the fastest way that I can make this discomfort go away? Darius knows, though, that his decree that he just passed, it can't be dismissed, it can't be changed. And so he, he considers, is there, other, is there another decree that he could make to counteract this one? But he can't. How do you respond when you're distressed? How do you respond when there's things going on in your life that you just feel the weight of life just weighing heavily on your shoulders? I think it's easy to go through life on our own strength in one sense. But Daniel reminds us that the best place to be is with our face towards God, strapping on the shoes of peace. As we do that, as we pray in the midst of our distress, we see the, again, we see the preferred response to Daniel's death sentence in the lines then in verse 16. This time, though, it's not from Daniel. It's actually from Darius. And he's the one who gives us the preferred response when we, when we ideally, when we submit ourselves to God. He says, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Maybe Darius has got it. Maybe something clicked in Darius. Even this Persian king was able to identify that if any hope existed, that it was going to be because the God that Daniel worshipped did something. That Daniel's God was the only one who could offer hope in this situation. It's in the midst of distress that we see this picture of submission to the will of God. That both Daniel and Darius seem to both recognize that God is in control of this matter. Daniel, or Darius, seems, it seems like Darius has... has Something has changed in Darius. But it's in verse 18 that we see the alternative to this hope and trust. And we see Darius' true feelings exposed where his words from verse 16 aren't consistent with his actions. And we read, The king returned to his palace after Daniel was put in the lion's den. The king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. I've got to say, this doesn't sound like the, the actions, the disposition of a man who has entrusted Daniel's fate to God. I don't know if you've had those nights where you've woken up or you can't sleep because there is just something unresolved in your mind. There's just something going on that you just can't get it out, but you know it's there. And it just stews in your mind and it just seems unresolved and just like and it just you just end up just thinking about it all night. Maybe it's tension with a coworker or or a family member. Maybe you watch the news that the night before and you're just thinking about all the horror stories from the local news. 
Whatever it is, though, we see that Daniel can't sleep. He's physically responding to his own emotional and and unresolved distress. He's unable to eat food. Not because he suddenly developed this spiritual practice of fasting. He stopped eating because he's so sick to his stomach that he was suckered into this situation by the other, other government officials. He's feeling guilty and embarrassed and ashamed. It says also that that he didn't bring in any entertainment. That's the PG-rated version of what's happening here. That's the family edition of what went on there. Basically, it's saying Darius spent the night by himself. He lost all motivation for everything. What what we need to understand here is that Darius spent the night alone with his thoughts, wrestling with this situation, wrestling with what he had done. He'd made this dumb decision, and it cost him his best employee, his number one. But not only that, he had sent an innocent man to his death because some other politicians had stroked his ego. The result of this response to his distress, though, came up empty. As he he sat there stewing in his own distraughtness, once again, his efforts failed him. The king of Persia was limited yet again. He stayed up all night, but nothing changed. The situation remained the same. Finally, we see the next day, the king rushes back to the lion's den, hoping upon hope that maybe Daniel's God had spared him. Now, we have to realize that a lion's den just wasn't just like a room that was in, in, in the, the, in the, the Persian kingdom. It was, it was, it was actually like a, a, a cavern that was dug into the ground, like 20, 30 feet below ground, so that they could throw food down to the lions or the prisoners down. So, when they th- so you've got to remember as well that Daniel was 80 or 90 years old when they throw him down into the den. So a 20 or 30 foot fall, if the lions didn't kill him, certainly the fall might have. But as, so as Darius has the stone uncovered, and he asks these words in verse 21, Daniel, Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel, servant of the living God. Something something is, I think, happening in Darius, where he just so badly wants to to believe that the God Daniel worships is alive, that he's that he's he's done something miraculous. He's acknowledging that the God Daniel worships is a a living God. And this would have been significantly different than the Zoroastrian belief system that that Darius would have believed. In five days, Friday, Christmas morning, we celebrate this reality. Where it's not just a day of presents and family and food and tradition. It's a day that we celebrate a living God. God. But in the same way that salvation came to Daniel, salvation comes to us. That redemption is here. That deliverance has arrived. Jesus, the living God, is with us. In the same way that the living God was present with Daniel, God came to be present with us, and His Spirit is with us today. Finally, After all the silence in the previous 21 verses, 
Daniel finally opens his mouth in verse 22, and out comes praise. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. Since I was found innocent before him and also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. I've been vindicated. I've been delivered. And we see that in the midst of Daniel's distress that he prayed. And out of that prayer came peace. Out of that peace came providence. And out of that providence came praise. Let me say that again. In the midst of Daniel's distress, he prayed. And out of that prayer came peace. Out of that peace came providence. And out of that providence came praise. But then yet again, we see the alternative response. We see Darius's, we see Darius's response to Daniel's deliverance. We see the alternative to a life where God is, is not present. I think, Daniel, I think Darius wants God to be a real thing, but he hasn't made that connection from, from his mind to his heart. And so in the midst of Darius' distress, again, we remember, he just tried to figure it out all himself. And as he just tried to think and try to do it all himself and try to control the situation himself, he was restless. And in his restlessness, he discovered that he was actually helpless. And in his helplessness, we see that God still interceded on behalf of Daniel. And in verse 23... It says, Darius's response was, very glad. That's nice. I'm happy that Darius was very glad that an innocent man wasn't eaten by a lion because he made a dumb decision that was rooted in self-interest. That's, that's great that he was glad. The response to me seems really hollow, especially in contrast to Daniel's response where Daniel is able to associate where his deliverance came from. He's able to celebrate the presence of the, the fact that the living God rescued him, that God had provided for him and closed the lion's mouths. See, Daniel had watched and experienced God take care of him systematically throughout his entire life, and it continued in this moment. Darius is just very glad. And he almost just seems relieved that Daniel didn't die and that he kind of just dodged a bullet with this one. Kind of got a mulligan when it comes to political decisions. That God had once again delivered Daniel and the lions didn't get what they want, both the ones in the den and the ones in the political realm. The Bible, though, talks about another lion that you and I need to be aware of. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter writes, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And the metaphor here is strengthened when we understand the tactics and approach and instincts of a lion, isn't it? Where we know, as I mentioned earlier, that lions sneak and scheme and stalk their prey, waiting for the most opportune moment to pounce. It's in that moment when the prey lets their guard down that a lion steals every opportunity they can to make their move. The reality is, is that the devil isn't much different. He's had millenniums to perfect his technique as he hunts his prey 
you and I. The devil sneaks and schemes and stalks you and I, waiting for the opportune moment to devour us, to destroy us. Peter, though, gives us two great pieces of advice just before this this warning in chapter 5, verse 8. And he says, be alert and sober-minded. Now, the Greek word here for be alert is gregoreo. It's, it's meant to be a warning. It's to, it means to, to stay watchful because if you don't, some form of pain may come upon you. It, it would be like when you're working with your kids around the kitchen and you might tell your kids, don't touch the, don't be careful around the oven because if you're not careful, you're going to get burned. Or when I work with my kids in the garage and, and they're using power tools with me, I say, guys, be careful. They're not toys. If you're not careful, you're going to get hurt. Be, so be on alert. And then he also says, be sober-minded. Again, the Greek word here is napho, which means just remain calm. Stay collected in your disposition. Don't get too high. Don't get too low. I think we see that contrasted in Daniel and Darius in chapter 6, don't we? To Darius, he wasn't alert, and so he was able to be taken advantage of. We also see his, 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 the absence of his sober mind when he's just frantically running all over the place trying to undo the decision that he had made. Daniel, though, on the other hand, centered himself around prayer, rooting himself in the Spirit of God, where we, where we see this calmness as he responds to his situation. So instead of, so as the situation arises, he begins to respond rather than react to it. Let me say that again. That Daniel centered himself around prayer. He rooted himself in the spirit of God, where he then was able to respond to a situation as it arose rather than react to it. He responded rather than reacted. Now, as we have been talking about the armor of God for the last three or four months, we know that the armor is designed to protect and to help us advance the kingdom. We also know that as we strap on the shoes of peace, as we walk into God, that, that we walk with God into battle. Admittedly, though, I would say that there are seasons, that there's moments when I, maybe we, aren't always the most attentive, where we aren't always the most alert or sober-minded, like Peter warns us to be. The reality is, is that for some of us, when we're tired, when we're emotionally elevated, when we're lonely, even distracted, those are the times that you and I are most vulnerable. Those are the times where we might struggle with being alert and sober-minded, tired, emotional, lonely, distracted. And I'm sure there's probably a whole sermon series on these four areas. But I do want to provide just a really brief snapshot on each of of these four as we continue to consider our own soul care and and self-care. Being tired isn't just feeling sleepy, like some of you might be this morning. It's a general weariness in our spirit, like some of you might be this morning. It's a feeling of being run down and exhausted. Maybe the days are just filled with meetings and activities that just drain our energy levels, just, just suck our soul. 
For some of us, it's just this intense, prolonged conversations with people that just is really draining. And maybe for others, though, it's the, it's the absence of those types of conversations with people. And for others, maybe it's the busyness of work or school day or the weight of stress that these activities can bring. Some of the ways that we can combat this, this, this temptation of, of this moment of being vulnerable by being tired is by building into ourselves daily rhythms. Maybe just getting a full night's sleep or even a nap. Jesus took naps. That seems like a good idea. Read a book. Do a craft. Maybe build something over this Christmas break. Do a puzzle. Take a walk. Just exercise. These have actually been proven activities to address feelings of tiredness that actually begin to re-engage our mind and actually begin to provide some, breathe some life into us again. The next are emotions. Our emotions are, are just natural responses and that they're off to our situations and experiences. Now, the important thing about our emotions is that they're often telling us something deeper happening inside of us, where we begin to see, we can look at, at, at Darius, who seems to have, have expressed all kinds of emotions going on here. There's, it, it's speaking to an absence of something going on inside of his heart. Often our emotions are a symptom of something that's, that's going on deeper inside of us, where we can care for our emotions simply by attending to them through prayer. As I said, though, I don't know about you, but when I'm distressed and my emotions are elevated, when I'm angry, when I'm sad, when I'm hurt, when I'm disappointed, those are often the times that I just lay awake like Darius. But I tell you, I'll share what I've learned from experience. That in those moments when I'm lying awake in bed, those moments where I just, I was asleep and suddenly at four o'clock in the morning I'm, I'm, I'm awake, unusually, I think that sometimes that's the Spirit of God who's nudging me and saying, Ryan, we need to talk. The Spirit of God is keeping me awake because, because maybe we actually need to talk about a few things going on rather than me just trying to do it on my own. Maybe instead of trying to do things by myself, that God is saying, I'm right here. Don't forget about me. Maybe one of the questions that we, we can ask while we're laying awake in bed is this question. God, help me to understand why I'm feeling this way. God, help me to understand why I'm feeling this way. What's going on inside of me that's causing this reaction, this, this desire for control, this, this, this hurt, this disappointment, this frustration, this stress? Maybe for others, though, who are feeling just heightened levels of emotion, Maybe we can just listen to music or paint or draw or do something creative that actually unlocks the creative side of ourselves that reflects the God's creative side as well. There is something intensely spiritual about expressing ourselves through creative expression, painting, writing, drawing, singing, dancing, photography. I had a conversation with a lady from the church this week and she's about 80 years old and, and, uh, I asked what she's been up to, and she said, I'm, I've, I've been doing, she's telling me a list of things that she's been doing, and, and she said, I've been dancing too. She said, but I don't tell anyone because I'm Baptist. <laughs> love it, love it. 
The next way when we are most vulnerable is when we're lonely. Loneliness is different than being alone. We can be with family or friends. We can be at church and still feel lonely. Loneliness is this relational disconnect that happens when we aren't intentional with shared intimacy. Unfortunately, the pandemic has, often, has only escalated the feelings of loneliness for many of us, where we just feel a sense of disconnectedness from so many. For many of us, then that means that we have to be intentional, especially when we are feeling lonely, that we actually have to be the ones to take that, that first step. I think that's one of the beautiful things that we enjoyed about Zoom when, when we weren't meeting on, on, during when church was, was not open this year, that we were able to, to meet on Zoom and we were able to share some intensely intimate experience as a, as, as a church. Those of you that are still meeting online after the service, that's something that there's value in that to help us address that disconnect when we meet after service as well downstairs. But we have to be intentional about reaching out and saying, this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on inside of me emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally. Sometimes... Again, that role of prayer helps us to remind that we aren't help us to remind us that we aren't alone, that, that God is actually still present with us, even when we may feel disconnected from everyone else, God is still present with us. And then lastly, it's when we're distracted. Distraction can happen because of a physical or emotional need. For some of us, it's just something like hunger. For others, it comes back to that feeling of disconnect. And, and so as a result, we spend much of our time looking at a screen. Meanwhile, life is going on around us. And we're just looking, craving meaningful relationships through a screen. Or maybe for some of us, we're distracted by work because someone might need me. Ways that can be, ways that we can be attentive to ourselves and others and avoid distractions around us. We'll be doing things like eating meals together. I, I came across this study recently that, that said that the average household eats less than five meals together in any given week. Less than five meals a week. Just eat more frequently together. Maybe do something individually as a couple or, or as a family. Play a game. Go skating. Go for a walk. Do, go tobogganing or skiing. I had friends who used to call that sort of activity forced family fun time. The last thing I'll say about distractions is this. So one of the best strategies lions use while hunting is to hunt during a storm. When their prey can't hear them coming and they're vulnerable because they're too busy being distracted by the shadows, the noise, the things going on around them where we, they have all these perceived threats because of everything going on around them. But in the meantime, the lion is stalking them. I would say that 2020 classifies as a pretty big global storm. We as the church, I think, need to be on our highest guard. We as the church, not just corporately, but also individually, need to be on our highest guard and really lean into the only thing that can protect us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. But I'll say that again. 
when we have storms in our lives, we as the church, individually, collectively, that we need to be on our highest guard and really lean into the only thing that can protect us from the devil. See, Peter continues in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, and he says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let me say that again, verse 10. The God of all grace, who called you, called you, called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That those times when we're distracted, those times that we're alone, those times that we're emotional, those times that we're tired or the storms of life are surrounding us, those times when we're distressed and vulnerable, just like Daniel was. That's the time where we strap on the shoes of peace that God has given us so that he can begin to guide us, so that he can begin to strengthen us, so that he can begin to sustain us and protect us and provide exactly what we need as we walk through life like God did with Daniel in the lion's den. So today... We only have this Sunday and next Sunday, and then we're in 2021. This morning, let's, let's strap on those shoes of peace as we walk into 2021 with Jesus together, because the reality is some of this is not going to change as soon as the calendar changes. So we have to be intentional then about strapping on the shoes of peace as we walk with Jesus together. Let me close in prayer. Lord, there is so much richness to this passage in Daniel 6. We thank you for the, the model that Daniel provided for us. Lord, in many ways it seems so huge. Yet in other ways it seems so simple. Would you help us to, to walk in that simplicity as we respond to the situations around us. Would you help us to walk with you, Jesus, as you continue to be present in, in our lives as we move forward now? We pray this in your name. Amen.